Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new, long-awaited episode of Vodka Clock Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Love from AmberUnmasked.com, and Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked is where you can go and sponsor my work, which includes the weekly cat detective stories and the podcast and other stuff that comes up, like books and uh, whatever I'm working on. So today, I'm just so excited to talk about good stuff, meaning making comics and art um, while the world is on fire and going to shit. So um, I, I think I've got a great guy to talk to about that. Mr. Monty Nero is here. Thank you. Hi, Amber. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I hope that um, I, I do have a water fountain in my air conditioner running. So just, you know, oh. apologies if you guys hear that in the background. Um, but uh, how's uh, how's life over across the way there? Yeah, good. Getting back to normal, thankfully. Uh, That's good. It's been an emotional day because it's actually my daughter's last day at primary school today. Oh, so uh, do you have you having a big party or something? Or? Well, they make a hell of a fuss of these things these days. I don't know what it was like when you left primary school, but I just went home and had some fish fingers. That was like the extent of, you know, the, yeah. the festivities. Uh, they I had think... like four weeks of events, like marking the end of their time at primary school. It's crazy. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. I think we just did like a small thing. Like it was just like, you know, at the time um you know my grandmother probably and just the just my folks um, that's nice you know other other people did like big huge to-dos but um yeah, when yeah we... this is all like this is all like school organized stuff uh if you remember yeah. from our first chat like making this comic death sentence was very much tied in with like my my wife getting pregnant and having a child and you know, wanting mm -hmm. to do something creative before the baby came and all this kind of stuff. Um, so the fact that I literally just launched the the final issue of the series like this morning uh, on Kickstarter, and yeah. um, and then I realised, oh my god, I've done that the same day she's finishing primary school. That's that's like synchronicity. The sort of whole kind it of link really is real life and uh, and and her her life events. It's crazy. Yeah, we did um, a, a school thing when we finished high school here um, where uh, it, the point of of the school sponsoring it and, and all of us being together um, was to discourage kids from like drinking and having like huge ridiculous parties. <laughs> so I don't yeah. think that's, such a, so, that's not such a problem at primary school age when they're all yeah no eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, they went on like a three night overnight trip to an activity center. They had like uh they went to a water park, they went to the cinema. Ooh. They had a school prom where they had all kinds of like um photos of them from when they were little and sort of a DJ and dancing and all this kind That's of stuff. Cool. Uh, they were all doing a shirt signing today where they all shine, uh, sign yeah. each other's shirts. And then they had a bagpiper who was like nice. leading them around. Well, it's Scotland, right? So leading yeah. them around the uh, playground on the way out and all the other kids and the uh, teachers were all like clapping them as they left and stuff. It was just like, it was crazy. 
It was. <laughs> yeah. Really, really well, see, when, when I was in, uh, I think it was, I think it was high school though. So it was a bit older um, than her. Um, our, we had a history teacher. One of them was actually a, a bagpiper. Mm. It's like, it's always like the history teachers. Yeah, it was like a history teacher and he could coach football. It's like, what? You you are a weird man. You are he, like into everything. Did he have any Scottish connections? You know, probably. Probably, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I noticed, uh, I used to live in Canada, and I noticed that people are very much into their Celtic kind of timeline because um, I'm from an Irish family, and uh, I got invited to the, the Irish club and sort of, you know, by these Irish people that were in the in the company I was working at. And I just thought, like, in Britain, we really don't care about, <laughs> about our history so, or anything. I've that actually, is hilarious. I've never even been to Ireland. I think my granddad was Irish, but I've never, I've never been. Um, uh, one day, maybe. It seems really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's. I mean, it's very similar to Scotland, except it's a uh, a lot more rainy. Yeah, I mean, mind you, like my experience, I, I have. Uh, oh, my cat just joined me. Hi, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to England, but um, I haven't I haven't been to Wales or Scotland or Ireland, and um, so my experiences with Ireland and Scotland are um, from crime shows and <laughs> you know, like broad church or in, in yeah. uh, card cardinal um and uh otherwise i've only seen whales through this woman who posts these magnificent photos on instagram where yeah. uh she has uh, like a bunch of dogs and they go on these amazing beautiful walks and it yeah. just looks like a fairy tale it's so oh, yeah. gorgeous yeah. yeah it's a beautiful place and uh, you don't have to go far until you feel like you're back in time or in yeah. the middle of nowhere where things are done yeah. differently. Things are done differently than they are in the cities. For sure. Mm. I know I am still in the like country-esque kind of part of New Jersey and mm. it's already got too many people for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've only been to New York, so... Like you, my, yeah. my my idea of America largely comes from from TV yeah. and film, which I'm not sure is the, the best guide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, New Jersey is known for like the absolute worst of TV representation. So, yeah. um, you know, like, well, The Sopranos and uh, Jersey Shore. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like, oh, God, like, so um that's why when I write, I, I let my imagination really just go. And yeah. Because it's it's not nearly as weird as <laughs> real stuff. That's the beauty of writing, isn't it? Yeah. And that's actually, the, I was so happy that we stayed connected all these years because I, I get really happy when I see your name in my inbox. Um, oh, thank you. That, yeah, that we've, you know all of the you know, the countries and artists and workers of all types have been through so much and mm. I, I because I follow so many writers everybody just the past two or three years have been saying like you know this is what you know this is as bad as our 
dystopian fiction. Like this is yeah. this is stuff that that we make up for the sake of adventure and for the sake of giving our characters challenges. Yeah. And, and particularly yet, the, here we are. Yeah, particularly in the case of Death Sentence, because obviously it's about a pandemic virus and uh, right. there's there's a lockdown and um then the government kind of behaves very hypocritically in how they um apply the the lockdown and they don't follow their own rules, which is very much what has happened in the UK. Um mm -hmm. and and obviously when I wrote that I assumed I was exaggerating, you know, for satirical effect and for dramatic effect. Um so to have like your worst sort of scenario of your imagination like play out for real uh it was very sobering, very, very depressing to be honest. Uh, yeah quite horrifying to to watch because um obviously i knew a little bit about you know viruses and and the sort of preparedness that you can have for for outbreaks and just absolutely gobsmacked at how inept our initial response was especially with like track and trace which you know if you've got a deadly virus you're supposed to be able to track the cases and sort of test and sort of like isolate them before they'd go out into the wider population and it was just a absolute you know horror show just incompetence really and um, right. as a result you know millions of people died so yeah horrible. and uh, and it was such a strange effect like you, you said um because viruses are different and i'm certainly no expert um, but when we have something that's airborne, you know, and this catastrophic, this easily transmitted versus like there was one case of Ebola and mm. people like went absolutely berserk wanting, you know, like a nurse or a doctor or something like God forbid they the person wanted to leave their house just to go on bike rides. Yeah. And it was like they were trying to lock this person up for, yeah. you know, and it's like. You know, it was a doctor who had been wherever treating treating people, and and it's like, but then when it's a case of like average Joe citizen, your your granny, your kids, your you know, you just anybody could get uh, this virus. Suddenly, people didn't care as much about. The, the, you were either on on one side or the other. Like there was no gray area. Mm. Yeah. I mean, at least over here. And I mean, we had we had protesters every Saturday. There's a group of, of whack jobs mm. that protest on on the corner um, because they were mad that children had to wear masks in school once they resumed going back to school. Yeah. And they thought that that was you know child abuse, and it's like. Have you ever seen a child on a ventilator? Because I sure wouldn't want to. No. Yeah. I, I mean, they, it's like they forgot. They forgot like how bad it was at the beginning that like the car manufacturers and manufacturers who had to shut down their own operations because they didn't have staff were suddenly making things like the ventilators and the shields for the faces and yeah. you know everybody I knew was able to sew a simple mask and stuff I mean mm. it's like people just forgot and I mean death sentence the virus is very different it's a sexually transmitted virus so yeah um 
I'm not sure how it was handled over on, on your side, but um, a lot of this was, was during the, you know, the Reagan era when AIDS was discovered mm. and they just, they were like, that was a gay disease. So it was not yeah. really addressed. Yeah. That's just like a tragic misunderstanding of the science isn't it. Because, you know, AIDS didn't know it was a gay disease. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Prove that you know to anyone that was mistaken, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was horrible to witness the just the hypocrisy as well of um, of a lot of people, and just like just you know straight up not caring, you know, it didn't really matter. I'm all for civil rights and 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 people's freedoms, but you know if you've got a stark choice where like someone's going to die unless you do something right. that's fairly easy to do, you know, um, which is like wear a mask for a, for a little bit. Um, I know. That's what was so mind boggling was, was just, like, you know, you're, yeah, was you're going so into depressing. the, you're going to the supermarket for like what, 45 minutes. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, you know, you don't have to wear it in your car, you know, but some people did just because they, you know, they put it on to make sure they had it on. Um, but like seriously you couldn't there there were they would scream and they would yell and they'd say i have a condition i i can't wear a mask and it's like seriously you're just some like bitchy blonde white lady come on you know <laughs> um yeah it was um it was surprising i mean i got it was i did an article recently for a, a site that was about all the things that were indefinite that were kind of predicted five years in advance before they actually happened and there was a lot of them but there was also a lot of things that I didn't anticipate like I guess on the plus side I didn't anticipate you know just how many millions of people would gladly kind of want to help and mm. give up their time and just go the extra mile to try and protect other people and you know especially like the scientific response, because I don't know what it was like in the USA, but in Britain, the people that developed our kind of, um, you know, um, um, solution, you know, the, the the medical kind of answer to the problem, um, they were basically just doing it. You know, they were ordinary people. Yeah, they're scientists, but they were they were they had other jobs and they were doing it kind of initially in their spare time and then just putting all the volunteering to do all this extra work and putting aside their, their, their real jobs to just focus on this, this, um, you know, this solution yeah. that, that they were desperately trying to, to, to come up with. And yeah. um, they did it super quick. It, they did it really, really quickly and way, way quicker than anyone um, anticipated. And all the sort of scientists were saying it would take a year, you know? Um, no, it was, it was quite slow here and confusing. It was, there was chaos for far longer than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, but like in New York and, you know, well, at least, you know, we look to New York as uh, because people are familiar with it. But um, it took a long time for things to get to the point where you could um, even sit outside of a restaurant because they, you know, like being out in the open air was is better than mm. being contained inside the restaurant. Um, but New York is 
already crowded, but there were so many less people because millions of people go in on a normal day for, for work and then they're not there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so there were these interesting little cabanas or I don't know, like little containment units, if you will, where outdoor tables could be put. Um, and people just sort of adapted, like like all this, the staff, people wondered why they couldn't get anybody, like, like servers were quitting and bartenders were quitting. And it's like, well, because you pay them like $3 an hour and expect them to make just tips, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you're get they're paid garbage and they're treated terribly. So, you know, it was a really big boom here for all of the types of companies that take advantage of people like the Uber and the, you know, became Uber Eats and DoorDash and all those things. They, they stack all these fees on people. There's ways to game the system. Um, It was just, so I, I I don't know. I, I obviously on Twitter, I surround myself with, (laughs) with more progressive and like-minded people, but um, more compassionate people. Because yeah. what it looked like on the news was just that people were self-centered. Yeah, that's the shocking thing. I mean, yeah, it's the it's the lack of consideration for your fellow man, isn't it? That's the depressing thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was. So how did how did making art help? you or did it was it just because that's what you do anyway that it was no it, it does help enormously I think especially during uh stuff something like the COVID lockdowns and the worst of it um you feel so out of control don't you you suddenly you can't work and you can't your kids can't go to school and you can't do all these things and it's very unsettling um but and you can't you can't control anything you know you realize that you're just you realize how interconnected you all are and how you all rely on each other, which is mm-hmm. kind of like, I already knew that. That's kind of where I was coming from anyway, but it just really illustrated it. It really rammed it home and kind of made it unequivocal, you know? Um, so uh, you feel sort of, you've got no control over your own life. So I think when you're making a piece of artwork or you're writing a story or you're drawing the story, um it's a it's a little world you can control and uh, you know that you know it's very it, it engages all your senses your mind and your your creative side and your emotions and you know you're focused on it you know for eight hours a day or longer so so you just sort of get lost in it and it's a it's a little world that you can control and you know that um you've got everything you need right here in front of you and you just need to sort of um uh, work for it and everything will be fine and it's very calming i think uh the good thing about art uh and writing which is what i always say to my my daughter because like a lot of people she frets about like being good at art and you know mm. there's no point because it's no good and stuff and i just say like well it doesn't matter i just need to it's not about necessarily having a brilliant drawing at the end of it um it's about just enjoying the process you know and enjoying you know the time you've spent drawing something and it's like meditative isn't it so oh uh, for sure even I can tell you this even modeling 
I'm because, you know, I'm disconnected from everything. I'm not staring at screens or TV or anything. And I'm just surrounded by artists who are focused. So there's just this, you know, almost atomic type of Zen where, you know, if I'm at the center on a platform or something and they're all around and there, there's just like this concentration and people are just creating and they're, if, it, if you're not enjoying it, that's, that's always a bad day. Like, you know, people have bad days. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, when you're making comics for a living, it's a, it's a job like any other. A lot of the time you've got to just, there's bits when you're just kind of working and grinding things out. But a lot of the time you're also inspired. You're inspired by something or an idea or a scene or something. So, um, I don't think it matters which of those two kind of phases of work you're in. It's still very calming and uh, just a a really nice way to spend your day, you know, making something that other people enjoy. Um, you know, you always feel very fortunate to be able to do that. And, um, yeah, it definitely calms me down. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, I read comics to usually to calm down and sometimes they, um, any form of enter- entertainment, if I'm watching, you know, cr- like crime shows or something and I'm like, okay, yeah. I need to just put on cartoons to like, you know, to go to bed because I need dopey, happy stuff to go to bed. But yeah, 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 it's, uh, but it was hard to see my, my comic friends be go through this kind of challenge because even like you said, even if you're already working from home and you're working on it, it's, there were problems everywhere. There was a paper shortage and. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, comic shops the, shut, didn't they? And they did. Yeah. Comic companies stopped hiring for, you know, six months and, um, they produced a kind of range of comics when they did come back and um you know shipping costs have gone through the roof it's gone up by 400 percent and um, mm-hmm. paper costs you know it's just and also it was just it was a nightmare period because obviously uh i make comics for a living and um part of that is like creating my own comic and um shipping that around the world it goes out to 70 different countries death sentence um so I got a sort of system in place and it had always worked really well. And then suddenly just started getting all these horrible delays on everything. And there was an awful period. Where I was really stressed for about two or three months where literally like no one could tell me where all my comics were for about, for about six weeks. And uh, yeah. And you're not the only one. Cause, cause in, I saw were, that. Yeah. They were in a, it turned out they were in, you know, some warehouse in customs, you know, in yeah. America somewhere, but no one could actually confirm that. And no one could tell me, you know, if they were okay. And no one could say when they might arrive. And, you know, obviously people are expecting their comics and I can't, I can't provide them because I just literally, I literally don't know where they are. So that was horrible. That was a really horrible period. Cause obviously that's a lot of money. You put all your money that, you've been given to make the comic you put it into the stock and you printed it and that's that's the money at that point and you need to get it out to people and if that just disappears you're screwed you know you're absolutely screwed so um, So did you guys have any kind of um 
like financial relief? Like our no. government was giving <laughs> us small amount. Oh, really? No, nothing. Oh, it wow. was uh, quite comical because like, I don't know what kind of help people got in the US, but over Ours here they... was small, but but to yeah. be honest, it was more than I normally make as a you know <laughs> as a writer and yoga teacher. So yeah, I was they just sort of like, give everybody some money or something. A bit they they did, yeah. yeah. And and as it wasn't enough for people to do like you know pay their rent and get food, like it wasn't yeah. enough to do everything. And you know, so there was. Um, but at least was it was an, something. Uh, yeah, it was something, and and there was um, a halt on evictions you weren't i don't oh, think you cool, were allowed yeah. to, to be kicked out so yeah, that's good uh, uh well that's something yes. and um no i didn't get anything i think um they had all kinds of different schemes for all kinds of different people but comic artist and writer didn't seem to fall under any <laughs> under any oh my goodness so yeah I didn't... that's not a real job yeah yeah totally <laughs> so um yeah we, i didn't get anything but but um you know, I just kept um, having faith that, you know, what I've always done, if I make a good comic, you know, enough people will want to buy it that it'll be worthwhile and, and that's what happened. So, And then um, it was weird that the, I guess because everything was shut, the interest in sort of creator-owned Kickstarter comics that you could post to people kind of increased. Yeah. So, um, I was expecting everything to sort of die off because no one had any money, but actually people were ordering more of, um, you know, crowdfunded comics and things like that. So, there was a craving for it, for sure. Yeah, because, I guess because they couldn't get anything in the comic shop. So. Yeah, couldn't couldn't get anything in comic shops and our just our entertainment was halted, our usual yeah, TV. There was Yeah, there was literally nothing to watch or do for... I mean, they did get creative with some of them, you know, like there, I saw a couple episodes where you could tell that they were filmed during, during the pandemic where the mm. actors were wearing masks and stuff, or they would do something um, which had to be very tricky to direct and shoot and, and, and just work out the, all the details. But yeah, um, like this they, one, those one show, uh, the rookie, for example, with um, Nathan Fillion, they, there were a couple episodes where they would do it like a reality show. They actually wrote a reality oh, yeah, show into yeah, the yeah. show. Yeah. So, so that it would just be like one actor at a time in front of a camera. It, it was creative. I mean, yeah. they got around it just to make episodes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. But also, I mean, like you, I was desperate for entertainment, but then I'd sort of turn yes. on a chat show or a show and it would be like, some sort of video conference or something or and I'm just like oh, oh yeah. Jesus I've had enough of like video meetings <laughs> you know what I mean it just yes even the sort yeah. of tv was depressing so it was quite surreal it was a, a very as you say sort of dystopian situation and yeah. um yeah I think I think it just helped just the small things like the community you know the neighbors like you know trying to help people um, taking food around to people, you know, making sure everybody had the support they needed, like emotionally, because like some people have got family nearby, but some people don't. And, um, you know, some people have got, you know, friends that they, uh, you know, I'd, I went around to see one of my elderly neighbors and check she had everything she needed. And she was 
adamant that I come in <laughs> and like have a cup of tea oh, and a biscuit. No. And I'm like, no, I'm not allowed to do that. And she was like really offended. And like, the whole point is that we're not allowed to do that anymore, Phyllis. I'm not allowed to come up, you know, within a certain distance of you and all this kind of stuff. But she was like, she wasn't having it. She's like, oh, I've lived through the war. I'm not oh, worried about this. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. I And like stuff that's just like habit, um, you know, like when you see somebody and you shake their hand and you had to like stop doing that. And I was grateful for the handshaking to stop just yeah. because, you know, we don't really need to do that. You can like, you know, a nice bow or curtsy, whatever, nod your head, whatever <laughs> is, you know, is certainly fine. Um, mm. But yeah. And, and then we would forget and somebody offers out their hand and I would just be like, Oh crap, you just had COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, because yeah. that happened. There was my one of my dad's friends um brought his mom over and she had just had it. And I was like, wasn't even thinking. She she it, we're all standing apart from each other, and she was like, Oh, nice to meet you. And like it reaches her hand out. And I was like, oh, damn it. Yeah. It was that it was that period at the beginning when no one knew exactly how infectious it was. So it's like, what, if I go shopping, do I have to start, like, washing all the fruit and stuff when I get yes. home? Or, like, wiping yeah. down the bags and stuff? And it was, uh, that was a scary few weeks before you sort of got yeah. up on, oh. Even I, your mail, like, yeah. your mail system, they were, they were like, let your mail sit for a day yeah. or something. And it was quite educational. Once you figured out that, actually, what your, what your mama always told you, just wash your hands with soap. Like a lot, <laughs> and a soap, lot exactly. The, like the people soap, don't do it enough. The soap will really help, and uh, that was uh, that was a good lesson because then you, then you feel a lot more confident about well, you know, if I don't stand too close to people and I wear a mask and I'm always washing my hands and stuff whenever I do touch something, then then that'll that'll keep me safe, and so it proved. Right. Um. So when how far since obviously the death sentence series mm. started years and years ago um yeah. and it was all about this transmitted virus that gives people superpowers but then the trade-off was yeah these powers might be great but they die within six months or something yeah um there's a they're they're basically time bombs but um so during the pandemic which part of the book were you working on yeah so i was working on the uh, third book so we're basically so that's basically liberty about, right? yeah it's basically about having six months to do whatever you want to do with your life and then this yeah. kind of virus gives you the ability to achieve your dreams whatever they might be because it kind of enhances all your your capabilities um i i've noticed that that whatever like it would be something the enhancements would would somehow be connected to the person's yeah yeah soul, they'd be different soul, for each you know? person. yeah and they'd be tend yeah. to be like creative or um yeah. something that they 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 were already you know had a had an interest in or were good at not always the thing right. they thought they were they were they were best at but just something that would be like a dramatic situation that they they needed to resolve in the time that they've got left so um in the first book uh, that's a complete story, and that was me and my co-creator Mike Dowling, and we did that together, right. and um, that was very successful. And then I did um, a second book with um, Martin Simmons, who's a brilliant artist, who's um, since gone on to co-create his own series called The Department of Truth, 
which is um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's out yeah. the image. So um, he did nine issues um, on Death Sentence. So he did uh, London, and then he did half of the third book, which is Death Sentence Liberty. Um, and then at that point, I was like, oh, well, I need to find another artist. But it's very, very hard to find someone as good as mine. Um, and also mm-hmm. at that point, uh, the story, you know, it's kind of like the, the second and third books are basically just um, one continuing kind of narrative. Um, so I was like, well, I don't really, you know, sometimes if you introduce a new artist that late on, and all the sort of characters change, you know, how they look. And, you know, it can be quite disconcerting. It can kind of unsettle the, the, the comic a bit. Um, I never really was a fan of a, of, a, of a comic when the artist would be changing every month or something. It was, it was not right. good. I like the continuity of having, like, um, just me and Martin doing it. So um, at that point, I'd always, I'd always um, done the, painted the covers for Death Sentence, and I'd also design the characters and I'd also visualize some scenes when I was writing it I would visualize scenes visually you know draw them to figure out exactly how they'd work and stuff um so I had and I'd, I'd plan a long way in advance so I'd had all that done for like the ending of the comic you know the last three issues of the book uh so I just thought like you know what uh is this is gonna work best if I do it so um I I drew the last three issues as well as um writing them and uh, that's been really fun because obviously when you're a writer and an artist, you can you can do things, you can be a bit more sophisticated with your storytelling and you can have little ideas. I've got my plot all sorted, but you can have little ideas of how to tell the story on each page or how a character's going to react or something they might say that's funny or something. And you can just do it there and then because you're in charge of everything. So, um, yeah, it's a nice fluid way of working that I really enjoyed. So, yeah, it was very... Um, very sort of labor intensive, I think. Um, oh, I'm sure. When so when you're doing it, um, because I mean, all it, all of the issues have been so beautiful. I mean, the coloring has always been magnificent, um, and the letters. Uh, I know a lot of people don't talk about lettering enough, um, but the lettering has been great. And um, so even from these transitions from Mike to Martin, and then you taking over does your approach as a writer um like do you do you change your scripts because you know does one artist enjoy a lot more detail in the script and someone else might just say okay get just give me the vague idea and then when you're writing for yourself do you even make a regular script yeah um I think that's key. I think the reason why I didn't want to draw the series, because I've, I've always earned a living as an artist as well as, as a writer. I used to design characters for computer games and things like that. Um, I think the reason why I didn't want to draw the comic myself was because I knew that I would just write a script that was, you know, suited me to draw and it would be fairly easy to draw. There wouldn't be any like large crowd scenes or. A, you know anything too challenging like visually because you know it's hard work drawing a comic yeah so give um, that to martin yeah, <laughs> yeah so so it's very much like no i just want to write the best comic i can write i want the story to be whatever it needs to be and be as dramatic and epic and 
large scale and it certainly is i mean it's like these are epic kind of stories with like um you know millions of people dying and um you know huge kind of like pitched sort of city battles and um Mm -hmm. you know casts of hundreds of people on a page and um there's lots of small quiet funny moments in it but it's all within the context of this really sort of dramatic it's a really book. emotional book because yeah, it is, every, it is, it is, it it's does. very emotional yeah a lot of people told me they've broken down crying reading the last scenes of the last yeah. book so that's um yeah that's good to hear because that's what you want you want to move people don't you emotionally so sure do um so 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 that was key to the whole thing so that's why i didn't draw it so that's why i hired a paid mic okay. to draw it because I, I wanted someone who would you know do a better job than I'd do and you certainly did that I mean, and because I could draw as well I, I can I'm always looking for someone that's better than me and can do things I can't do and um, you know I, it's easy to sort of spot someone that's got real talent and potential because you know I know what I'm looking for I know enough about it to know to know to know uh, what's going to make a great comic artist and both Mike and Martin you know I picked them up when um, you know they weren't big names but now they're both huge right. names I mean Martin's like massive with the Department of Truth you know in America right. and Mike is massive he does a lot of um, work now for Marvel on Spider-Man and Black Cat and things like that so I certainly picked a couple of good ones when I chose those two to sort of draw the series um, and um, yeah very hard to sort of follow that but I felt like because my own comic art had come on in this, that period those years when I was working with them um I felt like and also because I'd, I'd written all the scripts I did it was all done you know I'd finished writing the scripts a long time ago um I felt like okay well I can just draw these now I know the characters I know the scenes I've worked out a lot of the visuals for key parts of this already so I can definitely do this and still give it a sort of big you know I drew a scene last month for like you know thousands of people on the page and stuff and it was it was fun I really enjoyed it so it was uh, you just figure out how to do these things when you've been doing it long enough I guess well one of the things that I wanted to to talk about um was the monster part of it there's Mm. um obviously there's just there's literal literal monsters and then there's um the the characters themselves like you know monty uh from the first series was just such a narcissist and then um but then we also see the mayor and how things are going down with the government and um so i was just wondering since at a certain point we work in how can we stop the g virus from going on and spreading and some of the solution is you know besides them blowing up cities and everything is you know are these actual monsters with all the tentacles and disgusting oh, giant gomels yeah, yeah yeah um so do the monsters, these squid monsters, represent something in particular? Or was that just, um, you know, like something you always love to do as an artist is to 
draw squid tentacles and stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like it's a mixture of uh, influences. I think when you're making your own comic, you want to just do the things you think are cool and fun and entertaining. And as much I'm a, I'm a, I really love writing and I love having like a proper emotionally resonant story with a subtext and a theme and subtlety and a lot of drama and you know very dramatic stakes that keep escalating as the story goes on and all that kind of good stuff um so i love having all that but then also on another level you just want to draw some really cool looking monsters you know and uh, or you just want to i remember one time i got really enthused about doing some like espionage stuff and i just wanted to have like a couple of scenes where it was just like really sort of you know espionage action and like creeping around and seeing I'd never written or done a comic where there was a lot of tension, you know, just from, you know, just from not action, but from just like the sort of, you know, creeping around, not getting discovered type angle. Um, And then, um, you know, whatever you're into, uh, you get enthused about it. And I think it's important to ride those enthusiasms and to grasp hold of those inspirations and to sort of exploit them. And then just to use them in the service of your story so they don't unbalance your story or you don't just go veering off in some strange direction, which is why I always have the basis of, you know, I just work to a very fixed plot. I've got all my plotting for every issue worked out like years in advance. I know exactly how it's going to end, you know, three years before I start, you know, on drawing the comic or making the comic. So I'm very precise in that sense. But within, if I think if you, I think actually if you've got that framework, then that gives you the uh, license to then sort of riff a bit where you say like, well, I just need a new villain for this, to mm-hmm. serve this role in the story. What would be really cool? And then you think like, well, I've done, in the first issue, there's like mechs and kind of like a lot of cool kind of tech that she's uh, very she's up against. And then I thought in the second one, it'd be more fun to do like sort of these biological kind of creatures that the uh, FBI developed to sort of like take down the people afflicted with the worst of the super G virus. And uh, they've got this quite cool mechanism where you can fire the, it's like, they're like activated by a syringe. So you can sort of fire them at people who then say are in already in a sort of, um, battle or a scenario with these kind of um, super G victims and they then cha- turn into the monsters that can then sort of defeat someone with the virus, take them down and then um, so that kind of just gives a really nice kind of like dynamic to a scene. You're always looking for something that you haven't really seen somewhere else before uh, something fresh like a fresh mm-hmm. take, like if you're going to do like, you know, uh, monsters like this, you will think, well how can I do that in a new way? um so yeah that's a really i think that's a really satisfying scene actually those scenes with the the gommels that run all the way through death sentence london there are um at this part of the series um our character focus changes just a little um because the fbi agent um or yeah well secret agent jeb uh takes a very prominent role verity is still like really the main character the main character and then um weasel has a big huge part and then he sort of drifts off as a character at the and that's when roots a new character comes in and she is integral in 
make you know making things like there's this there's a scene and i don't think this is much of a spoiler because we've been through it um where the government shuts down the water supply and um you know and they're like there that'll teach them to not do what we want and roots is the one who's able to get the the water back so Mm -hmm. um with her amazing plant powers which i love i love plant powers so i was like so excited i'm like oh my gosh um but yeah so as these characters come into the spotlight and then they drift away uh what is it that you want the readers to to end with each character we're like a verity is i mean jeb we see jeb's like home life complete a disaster hmm. weasel same thing complete disaster and then we get this part with verity and i really do want to talk about this so if you guys haven't read it and haven't sponsored the kickstarter yet please go do that and you might want to just come back to this part of the show after um the kickstarter because i really really think this is so timely to talk about um but uh so spoiler alert i want to talk about verity because um as i said we see these the the challenges that every single character has but what she's going through is something um we find out she's pregnant so she's got the super g virus and she's pregnant she doesn't know and she's just throwing up all the time (laughs) um she's still like you know being a party girl yeah and um and the government takes it upon themselves then to capture her Mm -hmm. and um and this is a big deal right now in america i know Ireland's been through their share. Poland has been through their share. So when it comes to the choices of people who can have babies and how they have babies and whether they want to have babies, it's, uh, you know, every country has had their own, um, you know, revolution on it. So America is in a shithole right now about that. Yeah depressing as and, well, I mean, it? so timely because like i said like you've had these issues done and yeah how, yeah how did, you, how again, did you bring verity to this point i mean you could have gone other directions with her yeah i think oh it's just so depressing what's happened with um, roe versus wade and yeah. really uh horrifying situation and uh you sort of struggle to know what to do you know especially when you live in another country it's like how can i help you know it's just like a basic you know right isn't it that everyone should have and um it's um yeah it's it's really i don't think i don't think i feel certainly it's no substitute for you know doing something tangible you know with your money or your time to sort of help uh the situation but uh i guess i just write about I tend to write about issues that I see around me unfolding that seem to matter. And I guess it, there are a lot of things that are in death sentence that have happened in the world um, that I've dramatised over the years. And I guess it's just that um, you see them happening or you see them potentially unfolding for people and 
the ramifications of them and you want to kind of explore that and um yeah see like how would someone deal with you know what you imagine to be like the worst possible thing that could happen to them um and and how they would um how they would sort of get out of that situation and you know eventually kind of win through that's kind of like the inspirational kind of part of it when you write like you say when you control your own words and control your own worlds and and stories is you can you can um you can have you know an ending that is uplifting um as well as moving and i never try and make anything cheesy or trite you know you've got to show the true cost of you know serious events happening like you know people that are dying um and it's always been a really tricky balance to get because you know it is an entertaining comic and it is funny and you know it, it is supposed to be an entertainment which people a lot of people just enjoy on that level but also i have a lot of people you know that are have been dying of cancer and they have got in touch with me and said that they really relate to the book and it really they've really you know comforted them and and they found a lot of kind of emotional kind of solace in it so it's not like you can ever take these these issues and just kind of like try and gloss over them or try and make light of them you have to kind of get this really interesting balance between like the emotional truth of something and uh the horror of something but also laughing uh in the face of that uh, which i think is a way a lot of people cope with life you know um so yeah i think that that balance gives a really exciting energy to the comic and um makes it kind of what it is i, I guess yeah i i could easily f- feel like there's obviously a lot of different social issues that you said that come up in the book and i love that you you know you include that in your newsletters and um you know when we talk about even the character roots you know she is enterprising enough to say hey i've got these powers to grow grow plants i'm gonna have the like you know a reasonably sized pot business, marijuana business, um, you know, and it's like, you know, that's a big new thing here. That's, you know, all new here in the States um, that some States are allowing it. And yet, you know, the prisons were just filled with people on marijuana charges. Yeah. So, you know, so that stuff's being overturned and, and it's being overturned just in time for them to start locking up people who've uh had miscarriages i mean miscarriages or or abortions like they Mm. just they will find any way to throw people in jail and uh you know and then then you get into like even deeper topics of like you know gender spectrum and you know somebody is in the wrong jail for them and that kind of thing Mm. um so like Roots was, I just loved her attitude. Mm. I, I really loved her attitude. <laughs> and cool. she, yeah. she's, yeah, she's just, and she seems surrounded by some interesting folks. Like she's got this family, this, you know, not necessarily blood family, but she's got this, uh, you know, nice group of people that she lives with and they are there to support each other. Meanwhile, you see these other characters like 
you know, Jeb's losing his family, Weasel's lost his family, and mm. Verity is just like, you know, like, <laughs> I don't even know what you can compare her to. She's just this loner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you try and get different perspectives on it. Yeah, it's a good point that Roots does have her own kind of family around her, that she's uh, just, uh, it's really just her gang, but, you know, right. really tight. And um, there's a lot, um, I think Verity's quite envious in a way of that kind of setup that Roots has. Um, it's really just about expanding the range of characters. In these two stories, we kind of expand the world, we expand the characters, we see a little bit of what's happening in America and that sort of sets up a later story that will be kind of set in America. There's quite a few scenes in America in Essence, London, and then, and then also in Liberty. Um, and I've got like the arc of every character kind of worked out, sort of how they will end up in the end of their kind of G plus life cycle. Um, so it's just a matter of how you get there, really. And um, I plotted to the end of the third book, and one of the things I wanted to do by the end of that third book was just have a bigger cast and kind of a more interesting kind of range of you know a greater sense of what was happening in the rest of the world um from the first book where it was you know very tightly focused and um so when someone like weasel who's like really important to the to the death center's world he he's kind of like he's kind of he's, he's quite an amusing but also quite dangerous character he's so kind of he's drug addicted and he's kind of very kind of uh unreliable um which is um and he also comes out with a lot of the sort of more moving emotional kind of mo moments in the in the first um couple of books um so uh his story will very much continue um and it's just a matter of like his story is kind of so important that i want to just do a book where it's all focused on him um, and I didn't want to just have like little scenes that were like in the background of, of a, like a bigger narrative. So, um, yeah, he does kind of stop being the sort of um, one of the focal characters in Death Sentence Liberty. But that's just because in an, in, a, in another book, he'll be like the main character and it will kind of all be about him and what happens to him and all these different. You'll see a lot of the things that I do in Death Sentence, you see the same events, but from different characters point of view which is a really nice way of telling a story because it means you can, you know, I, you can do a book. I could do a book in like two years time. You'd see things that had happened in this current book, but you'd see them from Weasel's point of view and what he was doing and that had shed new light on it. And, you know, usually something surprising or funny or dramatic that you didn't realize. And uh, it's just a really nice way to tell, tell stories. And you get a lot of really dramatic and interesting juxtapositions between the vantage points of all the characters in the same situation. And that makes for really mm -hmm. good. I find that makes for really good storytelling. If you have like three vantage points and you can see all around something, but it's still genuinely one person's like point of view, and uh, make it make it really dramatic. Um, and of course, I thought I was exaggerating, but then a lot of things did actually happen that were in the book, which was, uh, as I said, very very uh, unsettling. Right, and. Um like whether it was intentional or not um like you said you're raising a daughter and and family becomes one of the themes of the book there's yeah um 
you know, it, it's, I can't imagine the life of being undercover like Jeb, who's, you know, gone for nine months and his kid doesn't even recognize him really when, when he comes back. And, you know, I mean, it's like all of a sudden your dad's there and he's this like skinny looking, scary fellow with covered, you know, covered in tattoos to blend in with, um, you know, the riffraff and um, the the seedy underworld that he was investigating. And, um, you know, and, and he kind of seems like he's in a point where he's going to make the decision where he's going to stay home. He's going to fix his marriage and he's going to raise his daughter. And then it's like, you have one more mission. You're the only person that can do it. <laughs> and it's just, and it's like, oh. yeah, I think, I think that's the key. Like, um, like I love all that stuff. I love, like I said, I love espionage. I love undercover stuff. I love cop dramas. I love, you know, I love people that have one last mission. Um, yeah. And all those things can be incredibly cheesy and like, oh, God, I've seen this so many times before. You know? oh, well, you know, tropes are fun, though. Tropes, there's nothing Yeah, wrong. yeah. I think they're fun as long as you're doing something new with them. And uh, so I, I can't do that stuff unless I genuinely come up with a way to make it fresh. Uh, I've got to come up with an idea like, how can I do this in a new way? And if I come up with that, then I can really get stuck in and embrace all the sort of fun stuff, you know, the sort of the stuff we all love about those kind of genres and tropes. Um, because I know, like, I've got a twist or I've got a, like, uh, a new take on it. And... And also it's the fact of finding the emotional truth of that situation and making it really kind of, you know, emotionally kind of raw and resonant for people. Because as you, as you said, uh, if you are, you know, everyone thinks those people are cool and they've got these cool kind of undercover lives. But when you think about the actual reality of living a life like that, and as you said, being apart from your family and, and you know it was fine when you started out but now you've got a kid and and you've got different responsibilities and it doesn't sit anymore with, with what you thought was a really cool job and you know these are not jobs where you can never do them without 100% commitment you can't be an undercover agent and not have 100% commitment to it so uh i just figured out a really great arc for jeb that goes in some surprising places and sort of has a new take on things as as we go through and then we can have really great fun with all the individual kind of issues where you've got like, you know, a shootout or you've got like a, a fight between the monsters and the and the FBI or you've got like, a, you know, a, a, a tense espionage sequence breaking into some kind of, you know, secret island facility. And, and I love all those kind of things. It's just that I can't do them unless I have something new to say about them or something new, new way of doing them. So, so once I've, I've got that I just really embrace you know all the it gives me a license then to just sort of embrace all the fun stuff that everyone loves to see in those kind of dramas oh yeah there's I mean Jeb goes through <laughs> what you already think is a lot and then then it's <laughs> then you just like really 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 take Jeb to um over the line he's like yeah, yeah he's yeah. like this character cannot possibly go through anymore and then it's just yeah like, yeah. Guess what? Monty's creative and thought of something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the key. You've always got to be raising the stakes for these 
these characters and and sort of what would you just think what would make this even more dramatic and each issue you're sort of ramping it up um but uh yeah i've got i know i know exactly how things are going to end for jeb and he's going to play like a a major role in in some of the later books so um yeah he's got a great arc i think as good as anyone and like practically he's just a really good way for people that you know come to the series you know after the first book he's like trying to find out about all this stuff and he's he's new to it all himself so he's a really great sort of eyes and ears into the story for people that are also sort of new to the story so he he works on several levels i think yeah yeah and uh, so I, I was wondering because uh, i mean i don't know I, I i'm i'm sure i'm not the only one you've got a nice fan base and wonderful dedication of people you can see by the success of of how kickstarters go um but you did go from you know like self-funding and then you were with titan for a while and we're back to kickstarting um so you, this loyalty that you have of the you know your fans um do you ever consider letting anyone else play in that sandbox oh right yeah um no not at the moment uh i might do that maybe when i've you know had all my fun but i think the key thing about it the reason why it exists is because it's kind of like my sandbox and it's you know a world that I control as as we said mm -hmm. earlier that can be very satisfying you know on a sort of spiritual and uh emotional level uh never mind sort of you know if you're trying to practically make comics you know um for a living or whatever but uh so I think the whole point of it the whole reason why I started doing comics was just to have a little area where it was just like um me and an artist and a lecturer like you say it's three people and that's it that's all you need to make this kind of entertainment that then sort of like goes out around the world and you know resonates in all kinds of different places and and yeah. um you get such a great connection when you when you do a comic like that um you're really and like like you said when i started it it was all kind of um self-funded and create our own um so you just have a great connection with your readers because you're so, you know, delighted and honoured that anyone would spend their money on your comic when there's thousands of comics out every month. And you're just so chuffed that someone's bothered to sort of read yours and uh, tell you that, you know, that they like it or they enjoyed parts of it or that they didn't like this part of it, whatever it might be. Um, it's just great to have that connection. And you get that with Creator Own Comics in a much deeper way than you do doing you know the x-men or the hulk or something so right um i was lucky enough to get you know invited to write those comics for marvel and um it was fantastic you know and they sold really well but probably the interactions that i had with the fans of uh those comics was probably about five percent of the interactions i get from my own comics um because of course it's like well how do they reach me? You know, they bought an yeah. X-Men comic or a, you know, they have to go and find out who the writer was and then go and look up the writer's web page and then think maybe uh, send them a message. And that's like way too many steps for most people who are just trying to get through their own day, you know? Um, so uh, it just, I didn't find it um, as rewarding on that level. 
also it was quite I was quite surprised how little you know Marvel paid (laughs) 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 having got to that sort of stage and uh, obviously they have a scale and if you're Brian Michael Bendis you're in a lot more than than I was you know right in my first episodes of the X-Men or and that's perfectly you know understandable but I was still I was still like um, I think I think what what was happening around the same time was just the whole economics of comics and comic publishing was changing and that it suddenly became possible for the first time ever really to have a creator-owned comic series and have it be financially kind of rewarding um, and that hadn't really been possible before because if you didn't go through you know newsstands and comic shops and the traditional kind of distribution models uh, by which you would basically end up by one means or another with about, you know, 2% of whatever your cover price was by the end of that process. Right. Um, You couldn't couldn't get a comic out there. And now suddenly it was possible to get a comic to a significant number of people um, in a way that, you know, the creators, the people that made the comic are keeping, you know, a much bigger proportion of the cover price and and that makes it financially viable to to do so you think like when you when you're doing your own comics and then you're doing comics for marvel and you're making more from your own comics you think like well it's actually more fun making my own comics right <laughs> as well um so- the one thing I think people would, you know, creators would miss is the uh, advertising. Like, you don't want to have to deal with your own advertising budget. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't really... Uh, when you publish your own comics, there's a lot involved. You've got to do a lot of marketing. You've got to do a lot of... Um, yeah, you have to do um, everything. You've got to do a lot of practical things. You've got to, you know, deal with all the printing and the shipping and logistics and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I don't particularly enjoy those things but they're definitely worth it um to get to the meat and potatoes of drawing and writing your own comic which is you know an honor and I just feel so lucky to be alive at a time when it's possible for people like me to do that you know because you know Jack Kirby didn't get that freedom to make his own comic mm-hmm. and to build his own universe and he's like a hundred times more talented than I am um so it's just a luck of you know, uh, history that I'm alive at a time when it's possible. And I just think it's almost like uh, shameful if I don't, you know, you know, take advantage of that opportunity and create something that's really, really good, that will stand the test of time, that people will enjoy, but also that is very satisfying to me personally, you know, as far as like just doing all the things I want to do in a comic. Well, as you you said that, times have have shifted a a little bit they've gone one way and then the other as far as corporations really being the ones to get all the best deals um and then it was like okay it took a pandemic and millions of people dying for creators to be discovered again but it's so weird to me how sometimes it clicks into place for everybody like for the corporation and for the creator and i'm thinking of things like um the walking dead how that you know was kirkman's baby and went through a whole lawsuit about whether um 
uh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, crap, his co-creator. Um, like, who, you know, is it co-creator? Was it work for hire? And at mm. the same time, you know, other artists have come on and done like so many issues. And then you have franchises. Well, I say franchise, but it's kind of is at this point, the Sandman and the Endless. Um, yeah. It's like, you know, it's Neil Gaiman's really, it's his world, his sandbox. And many artists have contributed and it's been like in um, comic book form and little storybook form, like for, for kids. And it's, um, you know, there's going to be a TV show or something. So it, it, it crosses from this, you know, creator sandbox into corporate IP. Mm. And it's, you know, I think it's so easy to just quickly sign a contract because you're like, oh, my God, I, I want a contract. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, if you try to write in something like, no, I want more. I want more than you're giving me or you're offering me. Yeah. It's, it, such a different position because you know as the creator you're going to the publisher it's so rarely a publisher going to a creator and saying hey will you make something that's yeah. like you gotta be a superstar for that yeah yeah no um uh, it is uh there is an interesting distinction there between you know when something becomes an ip and sort of like a product and um i'm not really interested in any of that um because like i said that's why i started making comics I, uh i wanted to make comics because i just wanted to do my own thing and have something that a little kind of world that i could build of my own without having to go to meetings <laughs> yeah to, i i love how you, you about how this would sell or whether it was yeah. marketable i just don't care it's just like i i want to make what i want to make and if i'm enthusiastic about it and it's good i really feel that there will be an audience for it um, of people that share similar interests, but that's not really why I make it. It's it's like, as we discussed, it's more like, you know, for my, for my soul, really for my, for my sort of uh, sense of well being and kind of satisfaction. Um, and I'm, I'm always very happy to make enough to then make another one. And that's kind of like, as long as I can do that, I'm, I'm always going to keep making it. So, so, um, and, uh, I, I do get approaches sometimes from, you know, people and I'm just like, I really can't be asked. I know, I know that we could potentially be money in it, but I just, I just don't care. It's like, it's not like, you know, particularly wealthy or anything. I'm really not, but I just don't care about materialistic things in that sense. As long as I can, lucky enough to be able to pay the bills and to sort of look after my family. I don't want to be any richer. I don't want a bigger house. I don't want a better car. I don't want any of these things that you're supposed to want. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to do any of these kind of things that a lot of people seem to be motivated by. Uh, I just think it's such an honor to be able to make a comic that people read and like. I, I, I That is enough for me. I like die happy just knowing that that happened. So, so all I want to do is just keep making this comic and have the freedom to do it the way that, you know, me and whatever artist I'm working with want to do it. Um, and, um, 
yeah make it make it make it good make it really good that's that's the key thing for me is like you've got to be all the people i work with they've got to be 100 percent committed towards making each page the best it can be by whatever you know however we do that we've got to, we've just got to make sure we do that we don't we never churn anything out we never say like oh that's fine that'll do we're always like you know could this be a better scene could it work better could it you know is there something very rare nowadays that something is not working but i remember on the first issue there was a couple of things that weren't working and we just went back and redid them because it's like well, what's the point of putting all this effort into a comic and then having it not be quite right for another sort of week of effort we could make it like perfect so and i think actually it would never have taken off unless we'd taken the time to do that so um these like little i think that's why the comic works these little little extra bits of effort you put in to just make something like really exactly the way you want it they're crucial towards making that emotional connection with people i think yeah and like you said in video games you don't have that opportunity there's they just overwork people just until they're a pile of goo yeah yeah it was uh again that was that was part of why i wanted to do comics was like i just wanted to be around for for my daughter i wanted to be at home uh, i want to be able to take her to school or take her to swimming or something and obviously when you make comics you're still working long hours but you're doing it in a flexible way that suits you and your family and you know i can do sort of five hours after she's gone to bed and sort of get something finished rather than and that that gives me the time to sort of you know meet her from school or to take her to a swimming class or something so so with computer games like you said you're you're always out you're always in the office and you're always working long hours and there's always some reason yeah. why you need to do 60 hours a week. So, so yeah, so, it, it's uh, and it's it was just so funny though the the story that you you shared um, about the difference between you know making a comic book character for yourself versus designing a character for a game where you know it's a, supposed to be like a talking teapot and then you have to have 18 <laughs> meetings and then 20 revisions later and yeah. then it finally like never resembles the original thing in the first place yeah yeah and it's yeah, like get... now it's a teapot that has like machine guns and you know <laughs> it's like... yeah you wouldn't mind that process if it made it better but it always made it worse yeah. it always yeah. diluted it and kind of amalgamated like 20 people's ideas into one kind of mishmash and i think people like pure ideas and they like things that are raw and like you know um just expressions of kind of like uh, one vision i guess and i think you can get that really well in comics you know i think that's why people like comics they just have a very direct connection to the creators and the characters and it really comes across is straight to the brain you know straight to the back of the brain when you read a comic there's not all these steps between you and the story like there are with other forms of entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. There's not the hand of thousands of people or hundreds of people involved in it. It's just you kind of taking something into your brain that's come direct from a writer and an artist on the page. And that's like a very raw and powerful thing. Very effective, I think. Well, let's um, get some information out there for people who uh, are willing to part with their money to help bring death sentence into, uh, you know, 
more of a, you know, actual thing. There's, we've got a Kickstarter running. We, you, you have a Kickstarter running. Um, so people can find it, death sentence, liberty, issues one through six. Um, and uh, you want to talk about any of the rewards? Is there anything that... Well, at this stage, it's the final uh, issue in this series. Um, so a lot of people are just getting the final issue. But then also a lot of people are also just finding it new. And so that you can get the whole series and you can get like the earlier books so you can get everything um which i think is a really nice time to find a really good comic because it's like you've got it's like binging a box set or something you've just got this really great stuff you can dive into and you know there's lots of entertainment to be had and it's worth your sort of time so i was quite surprised as it went on you know to find to find that a lot of people just love coming to a comic when it's been around a while and then just picking them all up uh, and and they get a lot out of that so uh, you can do that and then of course there's like as with every kind of campaign there's like some special rewards you can pick up um, just from this moment in time that won't ever be available again uh, some lovely sort of uh, art prints um, and um, you know things like that that you can I mean, find the in art the, is so so gorgeous oh thank you yeah Uh, Yeah. getting better with practice I think that's the key (laughs) that's the key (laughs) yeah I sort of I realized with this one I hadn't really drawn as many skulls as I was hoping and I just love drawing (laughs) I just I thought well I love drawing skulls so I just thought I'm going to do a couple of uh, art prints and uh, you know covers that involve skulls in a major way uh, and then also I thought like I always like to try and make something you know either funny or dramatic so I just thought it'd be funny if you had um, Verity riding one of these skulls in a 50s pinup style while it was on fire yeah. I just thought that's a yeah. really funny that's a really funny image uh, she's got like this Betty Page kind of thing yeah going on. yeah it's got a sort of 50s feel to it hasn't it so and I love I love you know I love all kinds of art, but I love 50s pinup art. You know, it's an amazing time of painting. And, you know, when, yeah. before it was before the era of computers and, and light boxes and when people would just mm-hmm. have a model and they'd draw the model and they'd take a photograph and they'd work from that and and uh, paint it up with the actual acrylic paints um, or sometimes oil paints and just gave the art a real kind of um, character and feel that you just don't get these days from the more kind of uh, the techniques that people use these days so so I just wanted to do a couple of pieces that kind of like celebrated that really and those are available in this campaign um, and yeah I don't know I, I like you say there's a there's a plot and there's a sort of a plan that goes years in advance but sometimes you just think well I just really want to draw some really want to paint some 50s pinup art or something or I just really want to paint some skulls and you just find a way to sort of work that in. And uh, I think getting that balance between inspiration and kind of planning is, is key to having a successful kind of comic. Well, since this isn't your first go around, um, like you said, Kickstarter is um, you've got a smooth uh, process flow already, your workflow um, and pending any 
paper shortage customs issues, which every, I swear, every comic that's crowdfunded goes through. Um, there's just, there's always issues with paper and shipping and stuff. It's just, I, I haven't done it myself because I'm so yeah, scared I to deal, deal with that. Having having gone through the COVID nightmare, uh, I just, I was going to sort of change a few things anyway, and it just accelerated everything. So I've actually got a system now of like printing and and warehouses I've got like a place in America and for printing and also for sending out the comics and I've got like uh, another one in kind of like the UK so it's kind of like whatever happens in the world I've always got a way of getting the comics to you so there's no border dispute there's no uh lockdown there's not I can always because if you can do something from inner country rather than having to you know export mm. com- comics to it uh, there's always a way around this stuff um, and it's the same with sort of um, Europe going forward you know because uh, obviously with Brexit we're no longer part of Europe so um, to get the comics to the European audience you sort of need another third hub in uh, Europe somewhere so I'm just working on that at the moment as well so so it's like yeah it's kind of future proof at this point there's no way I cannot get the comics to you somehow <laughs> Uh, cost-effective uh, rate and obviously you know if you for american readers if i'm printing and shipping in the u.s it makes it a little bit more cost-effective and so forth so yeah it's uh, it's a good way of approaching it i think all right um so the kickstarter is running for about 20 more days um and where can people besides kickstarter get information get to your newsletter and and whatnot oh okay uh well um probably at this point um i've got like um uh well i'm on facebook there's um as monty nero m-o-n-t-y-n-e-r-o um and you can sort of message me through there there's also a death sentence comic page um where you can sort of you know see some of the stuff and get in touch with me um yeah i'm on all the kind of usual places i've got a website montenero.com twitter instagram and so on and so forth and all those messages just you know come through to my phone one way or another so um yeah i will see them and uh respond if there's anything uh, you want to know that's great um so anything besides um uh, besides being uh, thoroughly inundated in your own death sentence world and being a dad and, and whatnot, um, is there anything uh, else that you're enjoying that you want to share? Um, well, yeah, I'm working on a couple of other things, but I don't really want to talk about them now. I've learned over the years just to talk about things when I know they're coming out like, you know, that week or that month or whenever mm-hmm. is the right time to talk about them. So. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll um I'll uh, keep my counsel on those and just um focus on death sentence. I mean what I'm really, really focusing on for the next sort of two months is um is just sticking the landing on this this final issue. Um I've got like uh, a handful of pages left to draw. Um and that'll be like four hundred and seventy eight pages in total at that point. Um mm-hmm. and then um Obviously, very keen to get it 
printed and into people's hands as soon as possible, which, as we said, is a big part of it. So that will take my focus for a bit. And then when that's done, I've got a very exciting project that's coming next that I'm really, really can't wait to get stuck into. But yeah, I'm not going to talk about that until until I'm ready to show it to people. Okay. And then can I have you back on the show to talk about it? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, that'd be an honor. Thank you. <laughs> that would be great. Okay. Well, um, I I appreciate your time because um, I know it, you know we've got these things called time zones here, so I'm keeping you up. Um, oh, it's been great. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me on. Yeah. Um, so, well, thank you for, for letting me enjoy your world that you've created. Um, it's been a pleasure. And um, so you guys, if you are, you know, hey, looking for info on me, you can go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked again, or amberunmasked.com and follow me, you know, on the, again, at the usual places, like Monty said, you know, the Twitter, the Facebook and, and whatnot. I really hate Facebook, so I'm trying to just avoid going there. Um, but uh, if you have any questions, you can find me and thank you so much for listening to uh, this episode of Vodka Clock.